about equipping, the equipping of the body, that uh, the church is not designed to merely be educated. Amen. I said amen. Okay, because sometimes, you know, we have this idea that if we come in here and we learn something, know something, uh, that we've acquired something, but we're learning, we're discovering that God doesn't just want us to know about him. God wants us to know him. Amen. God wants us to know him. Just like Paul said, I want to know him and the power, the power of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. So it's important that we recognize uh, that uh, it's not actually knowledge that will set us apart, that will change us or transform us, but it's uh, knowing God. And uh, we saw over in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 that there was a tree. There was a tree in the middle of the garden. Adam and Eve are in paradise. They're in a perfect world. But the devil actually tempts them and lures them with more knowledge about God. You would think that the devil would try to keep you away from knowledge, that he would try to keep you from knowing something or learning something. But in essence, uh, the devil was like, hey, let me, let, me, let me get you in on a little secret. If you know Uh, then you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And so it's not knowing that scares the devil. It's not what you know. It's not what you learn. It's not what you discover. Thank God for knowledge and thank God for the ability to learn and the ability to understand and the ability to grow in wisdom in our mental capacity. But it's the knowledge that we apply that puts him on the run. It's the knowledge that we live out. It's the knowledge that we put into practice and actually do in our lives. That the devil is afraid of. Amen. And so we saw that knowledge has the, this, 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 this terrible side effect. This terrible side effect of puffing us up and making us prideful. How? Because when we learn about something, we feel like we have known it. It's funny. We were just messing with uh, Chase a couple of weeks ago. Uh, him and Elizabeth are about to embrace on a new journey, embark on a new journey of of parenthood, fatherhood, and motherhood. And so uh, me and, and Pastor Caleb, and I think Lisa was in that circle, we were talking about parenting and talking about babies when they're first born. And, and Chase just chimes in. We're in a little circle, and Chase just chimes in and corrects one of us on the technical term of something. Yeah. That's fine, Chase. You may know what it's actually called. But I've actually handled it. I've actually dealt with it. We were talking about diapers. I'm not going to get any more descriptive than that. But we were talking about, he's like, oh, yeah, it's called this. Whatever, bro. Wait until you smell it. Wait until you touch it. Wait until you have to fold it up and you try to not get it all over you. Wait until you pull that diaper off and she pees all in your face. Don't talk to me about the technical terms. Educated one, you have not been equipped. (laughs) <laughs> I've been equipped. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt. And she peed all over the T-shirt. Yeah, don't, te- don't talk to me about technical terms. You've been educated. You think you know something. But boy, you don't know nothing yet. Can't wait till Amelia shows up and says, Ha, here we am, Chase. Here I am. Boy, he's in for it. And so we've got to learn that education is just simply an element of equipping we got to know we got to know last night in our staff meeting one of our team leaders brought up a great point that it's amazing how discouraged we get when we've got the training and we've got the background and we've got the knowledge but then the first time failure shows up we get so discouraged and fall apart like like i should know this why because we have taught people that education is the fullness when it's not the fullness it's merely an element and so they graduate they walk the stage they get the diploma And then we get into the real world where it's being actually put into practice and we fall to pieces the first time we get it wrong. Naturally, in in whatever field you work in or whatever field you're trained in, but also spiritually. Also spiritually in that we we come to church and we, we know the word and we know what the Bible says to love, to love our spouse, to husbands, love uh, love your spouse the way Christ loved the church. And then we fall to pieces the first time we respond improperly to our spouse. No, 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 no. Sitting in this service and hearing the word and going through these verses is merely, is merely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, 
When, when, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not all that broke, buddy. Trust me. You have no clue. Go back and listen to it. <laughs> Hallelujah. We love, yeah, we're waiting for something else to break, aren't we? You think you've got string problems. you got bigger problems than that. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, I love Chase. Great guy. Great guy. But we've, we've got to discover that this, this education element is just a piece of the puzzle. Man, you're going to fail. Man, you're going to hit challenges because that's part of learning. That's part of growing just as much as sitting in this service right now. But then when you get out there and you start doing it and you start putting it into practice, and yeah, you may fall flat on your face, but you get right back up and you keep on going. Because we are not teaching in this church that you're supposed to get out there and be perfect. You will miss it. You will mess up, but you just pick yourself back up and you get right back on the plan of God. Right back on the plan of God. He's got a plan for us. Amen. So last week we started to dive into the discipleship factor. We started to dive into the, the, the element of, of pouring ourselves and imparting ourselves into others. And we saw the value of discipleship. We've, we saw that discipleship many times in our lives is assumed. Oh yeah, I'm, I am a disciple and I am discipling. But, but it can't just be an assumption in our lives. It's got to be intentional. It's got to be direct. It's got to be specific. Right. We saw that it's three items. Number one, discipleship is intentional. It doesn't happen on accident. You're not discipling if you're not proactive about discipling. You're not being discipled if you're not proactive. Uh, Who have you asked? I I need to be mentored. I I have discovered this in my life as a pastor that people are starving, starving for true discipleship. I don't care what picture the world paints about the church. I don't care what picture the church paints about the church. I know this, that there are people in the kingdom of God. There are believers in the kingdom of God that do not want to stay where they're at. And they know I've got to grow. They know I've got to go beyond. They know there's more to learn, more to, more to know, more to do with my life. I know that. And I need, I need some mentorship. I need somebody to come alongside me and train me and develop me and push me and correct me. But you've got to be intentional. It does not happen on accident. Number two, it's specific. We're not shooting the breeze. We're not talking about the weather. We're, not, we're, we're getting specific. What are the challenges you faced this past week, and how can I help you grow past those? What are the things that you want to see? Give me three areas in your life right now that you want to see different in six months. Let's set some goals. Let's get specific about some things. It might be direction. It might be clarity. It might be your marriage. It might be your parenting. It might be your financial, whatever. And you've got to be willing to to be transparent and to open up and say, man, let me tell you how I missed it on Tuesday. Let me tell you what happened. I need help. This is discipleship. Those disciples, man, they... They ate with Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They, they, and so he got to see everything. See, we're, we're in a world today that's afraid to get close because everything gets uncovered. We want Facebook distance. I know you, but I don't know you. I know you. We have a status. But the reality is that our status is really just a mentality. The reality is this, this doesn't exist. But man, when you're willing to bear, tear down all the walls, when you're, when you're willing to step out and get transparent, and, 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 and I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest thing about discipleship is you find that the other person is just as broken as you are. But we don't wallow there. We don't stay there. This isn't sympathy hour. This isn't cry session hour. Oh, I feel your pain. I know. Let me tell you how I struggle with my marriage. And, and then all we're just doing is we're just bantering back and forth about how we're both horrible failures. We're not pulling each other out of nothing. You got to be willing to hear the other person when he, when they, he or she looks you in the eye and says, man, you blew it. But here, let me help you correct that. Let me help you correct it. Let me help you get that right. And third thing that we saw is that imitation is the result of discipleship. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What's he saying? He's saying, if I'm not imitating Christ, you're not obligated to imitate me. But we, we can't be 
We can't be afraid to say that to people. Look, you can look at my life because I'm trying to live like Christ lived. I may not get it right, and I'll acknowledge when I get it wrong, but imitate me. Follow me. Paul was able to, to, to tell the church at Philippi in the, in the book of Philippians, he said, look, I, I've got one. His name is Timothy. He is like-minded. He's just like me. All the others seek their own interests. Paul knew who was imitating and who was not imitating. Paul knew who was discipled and who was not discipled. It was identifiable. It was visible. It was tangible. It was, oh, yeah, I'm a disciple. No, he knew. Look, if I send any of these other guys, they're not going to operate like me. The, The goal is imitation. The goal is duplication. You should be duplicating yourself be duplicating. See, the greatest testimony for me as a pastor is not that somebody comes to church and receives something magnificent. That's great. And the power of God will move here in these services that will transform and touch people's lives. But the even greater testimony is when I hear that something happened throughout the week as a result of what you received on Sunday. That's even the greater testimony. It's not that we have to Look, look when, when, we, when we tie everything to this building and this event and this experience, we're missing out on the element of the church going. Not just the church coming, but the church going. The sending of the church. And the church was designed to do more than just come together in church services and play a few songs and hear a few verses and then walk back out the same. What is happening here should transform us. I I feel like I say this almost every week, regardless of what I'm ministering, that what happens in this place should transform us to go back out. And that's when we become less concerned of if the church is meeting all my needs. You'll be less concerned about if this church is meeting all your needs when you start figuring out how can I come in here and get equipped and empowered so I can go back out there and change my world. You get a bigger picture. Our heart is, is to meet every need. Our heart is, is to, to, to provide every service possible. We want to minister to every age group. We want to minister to every demographic. We want to minister to every status. We want to minister to, to all the quandaries of people that God brings to us. But at the end of the day, I can't meet your needs. This church can't meet your needs. There is no perfect church. There is no perfect pastor. There's no perfect pastoral staff and leadership team. You'll be on a chase for the rest of your life trying to search for that stuff. But when you come in here and say, how can I get equipped and empowered? Are they teaching the word? Do they have meaningful worship that is presented to God and is not showy and and, and just to, to, to prove what they've gotten gained? Are they, are they meeting the needs of the community around them? Those are the things that are important when you're looking for a church. And the size of their youth group and the size of the college group and the size of their children's ministry and, 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 and how many people are on the stage during worship, all that stuff gets put by the, by the wayside because we all come in here with one purpose, one goal, one vision. We're like-minded. We're one people. One people seeking one thing. Amen. Hallelujah. Today, I want to talk about five expectations, five expectations of every believer. Equipping comes with an expectation. When you're equipped with something, if, if, if your boss or your employer equips you, remember we saw the word equip means to furnish or resource for a job. The word equip means to furnish or resource for a job or for an assignment. So if there's an equipping taking place, then we've got to understand that there's an expectation that follows. And you cannot expect what is not communicated. I've I've learned this as a leader that I cannot expect from people what I do not communicate to them. Communication enables progress. So if I'm not communicating what I'm expecting from you, if I'm not communicating what the expectation is, uh, then you're not going to know, you're not going to be able to hit the mark. You're not going to be able to hit the mark. You're not going to be able to, to, to get on target because we might expect something different. I say equip, and you might have a different idea of what that looks like. But I want to talk about what does an equipped believer look like. 
Jimmy, if we could put Ephesians chapter 4, verse, uh, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 on the screen. I want to point out something real quick that I left out last week before I get into these five responsibilities. I want to point out something real quick. Verse 11 says, And he himself, that's Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Okay, that's called the fivefold ministry. Today I stand before you in the office of the pastor, the shepherd of the flock. It's one of the fivefold ministries. And then it says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. Now I want to highlight something here. Go back to verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some teachers, or some pastors and some teachers. Fivefold gift, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. I want to highlight real quick that equipping, equipping can only come from one source, and that's the fivefold ministry. Equipping can only come from one source, and that's the fivefold ministry. Why am I highlighting that? Because we have this idea that saints can equip saints. But according to this verse, that's not true. Now, we can, we can disciple, yes. And we can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, yes. But the equipping comes inside the church. And the, the saints and the Bible studies and the home groups and the discussion groups at Star, Starbucks will never replace what the local church is to provide. I want to make sure we catch that. I don't want to, I, I don't want to uh, confuse discipleship and equipping. As a disciple and as a saint, you should encourage other believers to be connected and be a part of a local body church. That is part of discipling. But you can't replace a pastor. You can't replace the teacher and the prophet and the apostle and the evangelist. You cannot do that. And you cannot replace the job assignment that has been given specifically to the fivefold ministry. We all need a church and we all need pastors and we all need teachers and we need those fivefold gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Just want to make sure I highlight that because when we're talking about discipleship and, and you begin pouring yourself into another person, you've got to remember that an element of discipleship is pointing that individual back to the local church. You've got to make that primary. It's got to be a priority. It's got to take precedence. Okay? But it says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work. So the saints are doing a work. The saints are doing the work. In essence, it's saying that the fivefold ministry equips the saints, and then the saints do the work of the ministry. And a lot of times, uh, you know, the, the mindset that we have is that the fivefold ministry does the work of the ministry. We skip the equipping part. And we just say, well, the pastor will do it. Well, the pastor will pray with them. Well, if I can just get them to church and if I can just get them before the pastor, then, then they'll get saved. Then they'll get born again. Then they'll, you know, they need, they need counseling from a pastor. And I'm about to show you five areas where saints ought to be pouring into saints. Where saints ought to be investing into other saints. These are expectations of the church. And these are straight out of the Bible. Straight out of the Bible. Uh, number number one is to grow spiritually. To grow spiritually. Mature spiritually. The word mature means to grow, means to develop. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to the, the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth. He's not writing to the world now. He's writing to believers just like you and I. And he says in verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people. He's talking to the church. But as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. The word carnal simply means fleshly. There's three types of people in the world. There are sinners, and there are spiritual believers, and then there are 
carnal believers. And carnal people are people that have given their life to the Lord through prayer and are now a part of the church, but still live and act like the world. They're still fleshly. They're still ruled by their flesh realm. By their flesh realm. You are a three-part being. You are a spirit, okay? The essence of who you are, we cannot see today. What we see on the outside is your natural flesh. But there is a spirit man on the inside. And when you come into the kingdom, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation instantly. If you come down here and we pray over you and you pray uh, uh, and, and make Jesus, confess Jesus as Lord, not as, not as Savior, but as Lord. Savior is what he did. Lord is who he is. Okay? Savior is what he did for you. And many Christians have only received Jesus to the level of what he did, not the level of who he is. But he is Lord. That means owner. That means I give you everything I am now. Every, everything from this day forward belongs to you. My mouth, my thoughts, my life, my finances, the things that I own, my actions, I, I give them to you. That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. He did that by saving you. You can now make that confession because he died on that cross and he shed that blood and you can now be made, uh, made righteous. Now, you're righteous on the inside immediately, instantly. But how many of you know as well as I do that you come down here and pray that prayer and when you go back to your seat, you don't look any different. You didn't, you didn't get hair if you were bald and you didn't get taller if you were short and you didn't get shorter if you were tall. Amen. We, those transformations don't happen on the outside. Transformations on the inside. And now the goal of our life as believers is to get what happened on the inside to show up on the outside. And that's a process. That's called spiritual growth. And so Paul, just to give you a little history here, he planted this church at Corinth. He went to Corinth and got a group of believers together and he planted this church. And after some time, he handed it over to a gentleman named Apollos. And Apollos now began to pastor this church, and Paul left because Paul was an apostle. So he would go and he'd start a new work, and then he'd move on to the next thing and place someone over that work. And so Paul left. Well, he's writing this letter, we know from history, anywhere between four and seven years after he planted the church. So we can gauge... According to this verse, we should expect the growth and the maturity of a believer anywhere from four to seven years. From the time that they become believers, that somewhere between four to seven years, we ought to be able to start seeing some fruit. And we should, already, we should be able to see some spiritual realities taking place in one's life. But he says, I, 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 can't, I, I can't speak to you as spiritual. But as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. Milk is just meaning the elementary fundamental principles of the word. Your identity. Who God is. What the life of the believer is all about. Who the Holy Spirit is. Just covering the fundamentals. The basics. The ABCs, if you will. Elementary principles. And not with solid food, solid food, which is the deeper truths, the deeper revelations of the word. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able. What happens if you give a baby solid food? They choke on it. And see, as pastors and as teachers and as fivefold ministers, we have to be able to discern and recognize if they can receive solid food or if we still need to bring milk. And so he's identifying... He says, for you are still carnal, verse 3, for you are still carnal. And Lord, why are they carnal? For where there's envy and strife and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? He says, you're spiritual on the inside, but you look like the world on the outside is what he's saying. There's a, there's a tension here. There's, there's a, a, a conflict. The outside isn't matching the inside. I said the outside isn't matching the inside. And so what's he saying? He says, you ought to. You ought to. It's an expectation. 
It's an expectation. Jesus had this same expectation in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, starting with verse 1, he, he starts out and he says, Look, I, I'm the, my, my father's the vine dresser, and I'm the vine, and you are the branches. He's using something to, to, to bring a comparison here to help us see what it looks like to be a part of the body of Christ and be a part of the church. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not, what? Bear fruit. We're talking about what you're producing. And when we talk about spiritual growth and maturity, we're talking about what's being produced in a believer. We're talking about the fruit that you bear. So they might not see your roots, but they will see your fruit. Now, the roots have to go down, and you've got to get in the soil, and you've got you to get that foundation. But once those roots go down, over time, not right away, sometimes we get discouraged because we're expecting fruit way too soon. They just got saved last Sunday. Don't be surprised when they're still saying some words that they shouldn't say and still partaking of things they shouldn't partake of and still watching things they shouldn't watch. But over time, as a progression of being equipped, not just learning, we begin to apply those things and we start to bear fruit, he says. And look at what verse 8 says. Skip on down to verse 8, John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified. Not that you attend church every Sunday and you read his Bible uh, and you pray to him all the time. But by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. He even quantifies it for us. He helps us see. I'm not looking for a little bit. I'm looking for much fruit. We've got to bear fruit as believers. He's expecting us to bear fruit. It's an expectation. Mature believers bear fruit. It's a process to growth. And then look at the remaining statement. So you will be my disciple. That what's been invested and that what's been deposited is coming out of you now. That all the services you attend and all the word that you read and all the learning and the growing that's taking place is now causing you to produce fruit that glorifies God, not you. If your spirituality is lifting you up rather than God, you're not spiritual. God's the one that gets the glory. God's the one that gets the praise. We're not interested in how much you know. We're not interested in if you get it right all the time. We're interested in the God that has given you the ability, the grace and mercy to, to reveal light in the midst of darkness. So the number one expectation that we see the Bible set for believers is the expectation of spiritual growth or spiritual maturity. Spiritual Maturity. Number two. Number two. You throw that up there. What you got? Well, we can go there. That's fine. We can do that one. Represent Christ in the workplace. Jimmy, if you've got those notes there, uh, we can follow that. We're going to represent Christ in the workplace. That's an expectation. It's an expectation that Paul set forth for believers. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is expectations of believers. If you're being equipped, if you're being discipled, these are the expectations. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke Count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Could it be that people don't want anything to do with God because they don't want anything to do with us? Could it be that we are setting a representation in the workplace that doesn't reflect the God that they want to get to know? A God that they want to be connected to? In the workplace. I'm not talking about church. I'm not talking about the, the show that we put on here. Now, that doesn't mean that come into church the way you would walk into your job. That means that we need to come into church and become equipped and empowered so we get to the job. That is your area of influence, by the way. Your job isn't there for your paycheck. Your job isn't there to sustain you and pay all your bills and pay, your, and, and, and pay for your house and pay for your cars. 
and to raise your kids. That's not why you have a job. That's not why you get a job. You get a job for influence because now the the area of employment, the place of employment that God has given you, you have a sphere of influence with employers and bosses. You have a sphere of influence with employees and those that work under you, whether you own the company or whether you're in a level of uh, 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 oversight within the company. And then you got coworkers. You're influencing co-workers. That's a sphere of influence. You get paid to be an influence for the kingdom of God. You get paid to be an influence for the kingdom of God. I need a new job. This job's just not making me happy anymore. It wasn't designed to make you happy. You're expecting a job to do something it was never designed to do. You're there for influence. Well, they're just not paying me enough. They can't pay you enough. You're a child of the king. What, name your price. It's still not going to be good enough. You've been redeemed and bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. What more do you want? Hello. We place expectations on things that they weren't designed to do. And then we get disappointed when they can't fulfill those expectations in our lives. Well, my spouse, she's just not meeting my needs. She wasn't supposed to. She wasn't supposed to. God's your source. So quit expecting things in your life to be stuff that it wasn't designed to be and to do stuff it wasn't designed to do and to provide stuff it wasn't designed to provide. But your job is an area of influence, which means you've got to go in there and be a representation. You've got to be the influence, not become influenced. You're the catalyst. You don't like what's going on around you? Change it. You're a peacemaker. Which everybody's just strife and everyone talks about each other. Then go in there and set peace in the place. You've got the prince of peace living inside of you. you you've got all you need. You can, you can rid the place of strife and conflict in, the, in, the, in Jesus' name. You can do that. Verse 2. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren but rather serve them because they because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Paul is telling Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, he's saying, this is what you need to be teaching the people. You need to teach your church. You need to teach your people how they're supposed to act and operate their lives on the job. You don't disconnect who you are when you go to work. And you don't live a life that is reactive to everything that goes on around you. Look, you're going you're gonna, to, every job has opportunities for stuff you don't like. Every job, every place of employment, you're never going to get along with every single person. You're never going to love every boss. You're never going to have the, the greatest employees under you. But we're called to change those opportunities. We're called to go in and be a light in the midst of darkness. And the workplace is where you get to do it. Look at Titus chapter 6. Titus chapter 6. Look at, look at how it's, or I'm sorry, Titus 2. Titus 2. 2 verse 9. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Stop answering back to your uh, superiors, but respond in obedience, following orders, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. One translation puts it this way, that you will make the gospel attractive. Man, that's, that's a high responsibility that we have to go into the workplace. And it's not the power of the gospel, but it's, it's, it's our ability to make it attractive to people, to adorn it. You can dress up the gospel in such a way that it's attractive and people just want to get a hold of it. And they, they just, i got to have it. Or you can make it look so dirty and so dumbed down and cast to the side that people don't even care about it and don't even want anything to do. And it actually put off by the gospel. 
the gospel that has the power to change lives, the gospel that, that Jesus preached, the gospel of the kingdom. But it's got to be attractive. That people will be attracted to what you have to say. Attractive to the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he says. This is talking about the workplace. Colossians chapter 3. We've seen this before. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 22 through 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Not the stuff you agree with. Not the stuff that's convenient. In everything you do. Try to please them all the time. Not just when they are watching you. This is the Bible. This, this isn't, you know, something that's plastered up in the break room. But it's what the Bible says. It's what God says. We should, this is how we ought to conduct ourselves. Not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear. Of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Amen. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance. If they're not rewarding you, it doesn't matter. Because your reward isn't with them, anyways. Your reward is with the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for Remember that the Lord, verse 24, will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. Ultimately, that's who we're serving. This is an expectation of believers. Be- equipped believers will represent Christ well in the workplace. Whatever your sphere of influence is. Amen. All right, so let's get back to it. Uh, Let's look at uh, number two, if we have it. Number two. Hallelujah. Identify truth. Identify truth. This is an expectation of the church. An equipped believer. How many of you believe that truth is on the stand in these last days? You know what I've discovered is that, uh, well, the word tells us. Let's just look at it. First Timothy chapter four. First Timothy chapter four. The word tells us. That truth will not be desired in these last days. The people won't even want to hear it. They won't care if it's true or not. Does that sound like today? First Timothy chapter four, verse one. Now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The version we have up here now, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. Did you know there's a false faith? Call it false prophets. False doctrine. Just because it's doctrine and just because it's faith doesn't mean it's truth. See, truth won't be desired. Therefore, therefore, the reliability of the source will be irrelevant. What do I mean? Nobody will care where, they, where the information comes from. Because they won't care if it's true or not. And if you don't care if it's true or not, then you won't care where it comes from. You won't even consider the source that's bringing you that information. Do we not have that happening in our world today? The media is running with this because we believe anything we see. We believe anything if it pops up on our phones, if it's in our time timeline or our feed, uh, or, or if it's streaming across the bottom uh, on, on the, the television. We just take it as true. Can you, can you believe? Can you believe he's doing that? Because it comes from a media source. And we don't even care about the reliability of the source any longer. We don't even care about where it came from. But here's what I want to help you understand today that's going to help us really drive this home for the church. Truth is not something you know. Truth is someone you know. 
If you diminish truth to information and to facts, you're missing the point altogether. I believe it's John 14, verse 6. John 14, 6. We have that one. Yep, John 14, verse 6. We've all heard it. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? He said, I am. I am. Truth is not information. Truth is a person. Now, here's why this is huge. Because if you know that truth is a person, you develop relationship with it. You know why it's so easy for our world to discredit truth today? Because there's no relationship. It's just factual. It's just info. And so it's so easy to walk away from it because we don't really have a relationship with it in the first place. But when you recognize that truth is a person, and it's not that easy to just fall away from truth. It's not easy to just break up with truth uh, because I have a relationship with truth. You understand, I'm not going to fall away because I've, I have a relationship with the person who is truth, not just the information that's being brought to me. There's a relationship here. Isn't that what we're talking about? It's not knowing something. It's about knowing someone. So quit trying to know what truth is, and we need to start discovering who truth is. Uh, Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. First Timothy chapter 3. In verse 15, says that the church is a pillar of truth. A pillar of truth. Verse 15, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to, ought to, that's called expectation, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That means the world will not discover truth anywhere else except right here. If we are not revealing truth, they will never find it. There is no other route. There is no other avenue to discover truth because we are the example and we are the pillar of truth. So if the church doesn't know truth, the world sure won't know truth. Begins with us. This is why it's an expectation of every believer. It's an expectation of the believer, the equipped believer, that we know who truth is, not just what truth is, and that we are that pillar. That we look, truth will stand all by itself. Have you ever noticed that when someone tells a lie, they try to get as many people to, to come alongside them to agree with their lie? But the person telling the truth will say, I don't care if you believe it or not, it's true. Right? I don't need anybody else to stand with me. I'll stand all by myself because I stand for truth. I stand for righteousness. I stand for what God stands for. It doesn't matter if you agree with me. It doesn't matter if you're on my side. I know the truth. And you realize it's the truth that will set you free. He doesn't say salvation will set you free. Well, if I can just get saved, you can be saved and still not know truth and still be in just as much bondage as the rest of the world. It's time we get back to truth in the church. It's time that we understand the expectation of the church to reveal truth to the world around us. There's enough lies. You know, the great thing about truth is that it'll reveal the lies, too. Because you can't you don't. You can't even tell a lie until you first have truth. Did you ever realize that? A lie is embedded. Until someone tells the truth, that's when someone can respond with a lie. The devil couldn't respond with, uh, you will not surely die, until God said, you will surely die. So there's truth, and then the lie responds to the truth. So every lie that the world is telling today is embedded in truth in the word of God. And it's up to you and I to discover it so we can reveal it to the world around us. 
We've got to know truth. That's an expectation. Hallelujah. Of the believer. Amen. The next point, next expectation that I want to show you is found in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's go with uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Spiritual growth is an expectation of every believer. Representing Christ on the job is an expectation of every believer. Identifying truth is an expectation of every believer. I'm not talking five-fold ministry now. I'm talking every believer. If you're in the kingdom of God, this is the expectation set forth by the word of God for your life. And we need to rise up. The second, or the, the next one that I want to point out is our expectation of teaching others. Teaching others. Yep, that's right. Every believer. Sure, there's the gift, five-fold ministry gift of teachers. But look at this in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing, that's a dangerous place to be. Mm, familiarity is dangerous. Familiarity is so dangerous. Oh, I've heard that. Oh, he's, he's he, oh, that verse again. Come on, Pastor Mark. Didn't you study this week? We're, we're doing this again. We're reading that verse again. Yep. I heard one pastor say one time, when you guys get it, I'll stop preaching it. <laughs> Amen. I don't know about you. I don't get it the first time. I sure don't. And he says, you've become dull of hearing. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to. Ought to. That's an expectation. Ought to. Be teachers. He's writing to believers. He's not writing to a group of leaders here. He's not writing to teachers. He's saying you ought to be teachers. But he says, instead of teaching, you need someone to teach you again. Again. What do we need to be taught again? What are those elements, those foundational, fundamental elements that we just have to continue to stay in? But he says, by this time, you should have been teaching. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come, here it is again, to need milk and not solid food talking about believers that have not risen to the expectation of being teachers and growing in the word. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe. A babe. Verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That's maturity. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised or practiced to discern both good and evil. Expectation of the believer. We go on into Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. Continues on. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about uh, the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And then he goes on into a few things. What he's saying is there are some things that the pastor shouldn't have to teach anymore because you should be teaching it to each other. You should be teaching it to new believers. You should be teaching believers how to come into the kingdom. You, you don't need to rely on the pastor for that. You need to be teaching believers how to walk in the authority in their life. You don't need to be relying on the pastor for that. He's saying there's got to be a point where you begin teaching others and quit relying on the fivefold ministry who's supposed to be equipping the saints for the work of ministry. It's the expectation he's setting here. It's in the Bible. We're seeing it very clearly. What opportunities are you taking or have you taken to teach someone else? Well, I'm just not confident. You will be amazed at how confident you will get when you start teaching and when you start pouring yourself into someone else's life. 
It's a big step. But it's the step that, that, that the church ought to be making. It is an expectation of every believer to be teaching someone else. But as you saw, it's got, it, re, it comes with the requirement of maturity. You can't teach what you don't know. You can't give away what you don't have. So we've got to grow up spiritually so that we can teach others. There are some subjects that believers, saints, can start teaching and passing on to other saints. And the last expectation that I have for you today is found in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Every believer has the expectation of restoring other believers. Galatians chapter 6. What's that first word? Dear brothers and sisters. New King James says, brethren. Brethren. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, drag them to the pastor and let him deal with it. (laughs) Snitch on them. Tell on them. Right? Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, spiritual, mature, that's why that's an expectation, is that you realize how many of the rest of the expectations we can't do if we're not doing the first one. You who are godly should gently and humbly Help that person back onto the right path. It's amazing how many believers have such a hard time with this one. We'll accuse, we'll condemn, or even the other side, we'll feel like we can't do it. I, I can't have that. Con- I'm, I'm a sinner too. I, I mess up too. I just failed yesterday. I can't help that person with their failure. And yet, Paul is writing it as an expectation of the brethren, of the believers, of the church. Restore one another when you fall into sin. Guys, when you see someone falling into sin, you can correct them and restore them onto the right path. We joke about it, but most of the time what happens is what I said first. We drag them to the pastor or we say, man, you need to talk to Pastor Mark. Because you don't feel qualified. And look what he keeps on going on here. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So he goes ahead and he helps us identify the risks that are involved with restoring and correcting someone. Number one risk is that you'll fall into the same temptation. That's why you got to be spiritual. That's why you got to be godly. That's why you got to grow up. Look, some of you might have to encourage and help a brother that has fallen into a sin that once held you bondage. And you need to be spiritual enough that you can come alongside them and help pull them out of that mess that once held you. And it could be that easy to fall back in. But he says, look, be careful not to fall into the same temptation, to fall into the same mess that they're stuck in. So you've got to make sure you're built up. You've got to make sure you're strengthened. But he doesn't say bring them to the pastor. He doesn't just say pray for them. He says restore them. Accountability is missing in the church today. Accountability is missing. But when you see someone fall into sin, it is our job to restore them. Share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Look at verse 3. Here's the second risk that we run in restoring a brother. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Here's, here's, here's the th- This is the Bible. I didn't write that. Paul just put it straight out, for, straight down for us, man. You're not that important. I promise I did not type that. Those of you that brought Bibles today, you can look it up for yourself. It's in there. A lot of times we think, man, I, I, it's just pride if I go and try to correct someone. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's pride if you don't. Go correct someone. 
you're actually being prideful when you don't do what it's asking you to do. It's actually pride in your life. Pride is evident when you say, oh, I can't, I, I can't help it. That's pride. Don't let your own failures and your own issues keep you from helping someone else. Work on your stuff, yes. Grow up and develop yourself as a believer, yes. But as you develop and as you grow and you see others falling into sin, restore them. It doesn't say accuse them, condemn them, drag them down, beat them over the head with it. He says restore them. That means bring them back onto the right path. Correct them. Bring correction. This is an expectation of the church. Brethren, brothers and sisters. You see someone heading. Look, this is the why. This is the reason why we have a hard time. With. With sin and identifying sin in someone's life. If we don't recognize the damage that that sin can do then we won't value the need to restore an individual. If you don't recognize how terrible sin is, you won't recognize how powerful God's grace is. See, the Old Testament, man, it's it's messed up. It's man trying to attain something that he could not attain on his own. The book of Leviticus a messed up book, man. They're killing stuff and they're slaying stuff and they're sacrificing stuff. And and, I mean, they're just going crazy in that book. Why? Because God is trying to show us that you cannot fix this on your own. Sin is too powerful. But that's why my grace is even that much more powerful. Sin is horrible. It's as if You are running straight into the road with traffic coming from both ways. And when we don't restore a brother or sister that we see headed towards that road, it's as if we're we're just watching them jump into the road and hoping that they figure it out on their own. Well, you know, sometimes people just have to hit rock bottom before they come back up. Why are we watching our brothers and sisters fall into sin? Identify it. Man, you don't need to be doing that. You don't need to be hanging out with that crowd. You, you, you don't need to be talking like that, man. We, this is the kingdom of God. We don't talk like that. I'm not trying to beat you over the head. I'm not trying to condemn you and make you feel bad. I, I, I've been redeemed from sin just like you need to be redeemed from sin. We don't need to be doing that. We're in the kingdom of God now. We need to represent Christ. And when you see a brother or sister falling into sin, it is our responsibility. What sins? We'll back up to Galatians chapter 5. He, he gives us, he helps us find out. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication. You, you know someone that's not married and they are uh, actively in a, in a lifestyle and habitually in a lifestyle that is for the covenant of marriage, call them out. Tell them, man, you can't be doing that. You can't be sleeping around. You're, you're messing up God's covenant. That is designed and ordained for marriage only. Why are you doing that? Adultery. And let me just help you out with adultery. Because he's not just talking about marital adultery here. Adultery means the giving Of what belongs to one person to another. That's what adultery is. Do you ever see a brother or sister giving something that belongs to God to something else? They're given time that belongs to God when they should be given that time to God and they give it to something else. Well, you know, I just haven't haven't been able to make it to church, man. It's just... I mean, they will make time for it. I'm just so busy. Just got so much going on. Oh, man, you need to be in church. Sunday morning. God's asking for two hours a week. Out of your whole week, 24 hours in a day times seven, whatever that is. I don't know math real well. Two hours is all he's asking for. 
He can give them two hours. Come on, come with me. I'm not trying to beat you over there. I'm not trying to condemn you, but you need this. We need this. Come to church with me. Make a priority. You're, you're, giving, you're, you're giving something away that belongs to God to something else. That's what adultery is. It's the giving away of what belongs to one individual to another individual, to something else. Adultery, fornication, let's keep going. Uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry. What are we giving ourselves in worship to? Anything you are submitted to, you worship. If you're submitted to money, if money tells you what to do, you're submitted to it. If time tells you what to do, you're submitted to it. And anything you're submitted to is an idol. If you are addicted to a drug, if you are addicted to a drink, if you're addicted to to whatever, pornography, smoking, addicted to people and friendships, you're submitted to it. It dictates your life. It tells you what to do. You don't tell it what to do. It tells you what to do. That's idolatry. Sorcery. Hatred. You see a brother or sister operating in hate? Or they're talking about somebody in a hateful way? Call them out. Restore them. Restore such a one. Well, it's getting quiet in this church now. (laughs) Contentions. You see strife? Jealousies. Man, I I wish I had a car like theirs, man. Why do they always have the nice stuff and I never have the... Well, watch out, bro, because you're getting into jealousy now. You're coveting. Outburst of wrath. You got a temper? Selfish ambitions. Oh, everyone's looking straight ahead right now. Ain't no one looking left. Nope. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions. Heresies. Envy. Murders. That should be easy. Drunkenness. Revelries. And then he just puts the tag on, I'm done. And the like. Anything like it, if it falls, if it falls into the category, man, as acts of the flesh. And he says, when you see a brother or a sister fall into these and the like, restore such a one. Guys, we've got a high responsibility as an equipped church. I, I know it's harder. I, I know that maybe you're just looking for a church to sneak in and sneak out and not be held accountable. Look, we laugh about it, but there are people that, that look, they, they, that, that's all they want. They don't, relate, they don't want relationship. They don't want connection. They don't want community. And let me say this about uh, 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 restoring such a one. Your investment in someone's life, let me, let me put it this way. Your connection to someone's life is determined by your level of investment. Don't try to restore and connect and, 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 and correct people that you have no connection with. Don't just walk up to somebody that you see that you don't know from Adam and you just start trying to call him out. Man, you can't be doing that. It's only going to be received on the level of connection. Build a relationship with them first. Get to know them. Do you even know their name? Do you know their spouse's name? Do you know their kid's name? Do you know where they went to school? Do you know where they're from? Do you know their story and their history? But no, you just want to start calling out all their mess. No, get to know them. Develop a relationship. Connection with people is determined by relationship. This is not a license to go around and just start restoring and and correcting all kinds of people. This is the license that says, now, let's build a relationship because the road I see you headed down is dangerous. And, and I just, I, I, my heart burns for you. It, it, we don't want to go there. But build a relationship. Chase, if you would come. Let's build a relationship. Build a relationship. Expectations. Maybe you didn't come in here with expectations. Maybe... You didn't, maybe you came here with an expectations from us for you, uh, but you weren't thinking about the expectations that were going to be put on your life. But, guys, this is the equipping of the church. It comes with expectations. We've got to grow up spiritually. We've got to teach others and pour our lives into others. 
We've got to restore our brothers and sisters when we see them falling. We've got to be a pillar of truth in these last days. We cannot be swayed by the the lies and all the false stuff that we see around us. We've got to stand for truth. When everyone has a hard time calling sin, sin, we say, no, it's sin. When you want to point to a different God, no, there's only one true God. When they want to point to other other supplements, you say, no, the Bible is the only foundation. Be a pillar of truth. And we have to represent Christ on the job, in the workplace. Quit going to job. Quit waking up on Monday with the sour attitudes and the, and, and the sorry responses and just going up in there and disconnecting Sunday from Monday. It's all connected. It's all the same life. This is not a message of perfection. This is not a message of you're never going to blow it or miss it. This is what we're pursuing. This is what we're striving for. This is what we're running after. Paul said, I press on toward the mark of the high calling, not the low calling, the high calling in Christ Jesus. We want to be equipped. Equipped. Not just educated. Not just know a bunch of stuff. But equipped. Mature believers. Teaching others. Restoring others. Identifying truth. And representing Christ on our job. Father, we thank you this morning. That you have given us high expectations. Great expectations for your church. But we are the body of Christ. We are the hands and the feet. We are the mouths. Father, I thank you that you empower and equip each one of us today to live this out fully. To live this out fully. Father, we didn't come into the kingdom just to sit back. We, we didn't become Christians uh, so we could take the easy road. We know it may be a little more difficult. It may, it may require more of us, but we want to rise to the challenge today. We want to rise to the call. We want to pursue and we want to press on toward all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you right now for every person on the sound of my voice that has heard these messages and that takes them to heart. Father, I thank you that we meditate on them. We chew on them. We, we, we grind this out. We keep this word in front of us this year so that we can be equipped to do all that you have called us to do. To practice. To put into practice what we hear what we learn, what we discover. And Father, we know this, that you will be glorified because we bear much fruit. Because we're your disciples. You will be glorified in all that we do. We give you glory and praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.